Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are willing to hear our prayers. We are amazed that you would hear our petitions as they fall so far short of what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. But you do hear us, and you are patient as we grow in praying that things on earth would be as they are in heaven, that your lordship would be more and more apparent until it fills the whole world. You hear us, and you are patient as we learn to pray that we would have endurance in the difficulties of life, rather than praying that our lives would be filled with ease. You hear us, and you are patient as we learn to pray with thankfulness for the riches that we have in Christ Jesus. The earth and all it contains are yours. Forgive us for trying to keep things for ourselves or reserve them for our own pleasure. Whether distractions, our time, our energy, or some besetting sin, Lord, we confess that we ignore your calling in our lives. We confess these things because we don't want to be in darkness. We want to let your light into our hearts so that we can be purified, forgiven, and made fit for your presence. Forgive us for forsaking your command that we would subdue rebellion in all of the earth. Our flesh is weak, and we often ignore or allow rebellion in our lives and the lives of those around us. Father, give us wisdom, courage, and boldness to know your good ways and help us to quash rebellion so that your name and your ways would be praised. Lord, we are thankful that you have placed your name on us as your adopted children. And we are thankful for each member of your family that stretches across the world and across time. We pray for them now, specifically for the gathering of your children at the Branch Church in Corvallis. We pray that the congregation would marvel at your redemptive work this morning and that Doug's words would be guided by you as they study Exodus and recount all of your wonderful deeds. We also pray for Trinity Church in Portland. We pray for their pastor, Thomas Terry, as he ministers through the word and prayer, along with the other pastors you have given that church. We pray that the congregation and their gathering would be marked by praise and thanksgiving. Help them to continue to grow in love for one another and knowledge of your love for them. For ourselves, Lord, we ask that we would join the prayer of Psalm 119, that our hearts would be inclined to your commandments, that we would delight in them because they are the path of life. Help us to show our love for Jesus by obeying his commands. Help us to discern the spirit of truth through our confession that Jesus is Lord. We humble ourselves before your word this morning so that we can see how right it is for us to praise and obey you. We submit to you, Lord, and we thank you for your merciful rule through your son, Jesus, the Messiah. Amen. 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 You can have a seat. And you can open up to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm 8. A few weeks ago, Brian, Felix, and I went on a quick road trip to visit a mutual old friend of ours in Idaho. As we were driving along, I had flashbacks to my childhood road trips. Specifically, I remembered driving along in our family's Volkswagen Vanagon, and out of nowhere, my father pulling over to what seemed like a random spot on the road and all of us getting out. Now, as a small child, I just wanted to get to where we were going or focus on my Walkman, yes, I'm that old, my Walkman, and listen to my music. But I would emerge from the car, because of this, somewhat annoyed, asking with an eye roll as a rebellious child, why didn't we stop here, right? Does this ring a bell for anybody else? And then my father would usually point out the beauty in front of us or the historical marker denoting that something of significance had occurred at the place we stood. Now, in my eyes as a child, I just saw an empty field or some natural formation. But there would be something that would say, this is significant, pay attention. Do you guys know the historical markers that I'm talking about? Are any of you nerds like me that now pull over to them to see them? Anybody else? Nice, good. 
Now, the irony of those markers is that they usually could not be less significant in appearance. And if you're not looking for them, they usually disappear into their surroundings. And so every day, you and I pass by locations that are significant in the history of man, the history of our nation, the history of our state, that have been stepping stones to where we are today. But we pass by them as if they could not be more insignificant. And this is the human state, is it not? That unless we are purposefully focused on something, we will pass right by it, going about our merry way, because we are lords of our own lives. Unless it is significant to us, we will render it insignificant. The whole reason these markers exist, however, is to cause us to stop and ponder the importance and weight of whatever significant event happened at that location. Unfortunately, if we're not looking for it, we often miss it. Now, the same could easily be said about how we ignore God and his works throughout history. Think about what we have in our hands for a moment. We have a book that narrates the story of the God of the universe sticking his arm, if you will, into our reality and moving it for his purposes and glory. And we leave this on the shelf gathering dust most days. Every moment of every day, not only by his word, but the creation that surrounds us, we are in the midst of God's handiwork his majesty, his glory, his beauty, every single molecule in this room speaks to his glory. It speaks to his power and strength. And it's almost as if our brains are somewhat incapable of understanding that. And yet, we go through this creation with a blindness and worse yet, an entitlement that blunts our ability to see the significance of God. And this is what Paul declared in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We make the truth insignificant. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. How? His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. There is a creation, therefore there is a creator. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. We so quickly elevate our own significance that we then automatically dismiss the significance of God in our actions, making him seem insignificant. This is why the Psalms are such a wonderfully gracious tool for us in our worship of God. You see, friends, we live in a society where even for the church, we have to put bumper stickers on our car to remind us that he is greater than I. That's how far afield we are. Now, if you have one of those bumper stickers, great. I don't mind it because it's the truth. He is greater than I. But the fact that we even have to remind ourselves of that shows how we have missed the forest for the trees. Of course he is greater than I. He is God, and I am puny me. Of course he is greater than I. But this, friends, is anathema to our culture. Even right now, some of you are flinching because you're like, how dare you dismiss my significance? You see, the Psalms are meant to reorder this. They're meant to put us back in a place where we understand the truth and stop suppressing it. For in speaking out and singing and studying the Psalms, our hearts are reoriented to the beautiful truth. And today, with Psalms 8 and 9, it will be no different. In reading and unpacking these psalms, King David will peel back the scales from our eyes, and he will show us three foundational truths. The significance of God, the innate insignificance of man without God, and the gift of significance that God has given to man. Now, these will not be our points, but I want you to write them down because they are the basis. They are the basis that leads to our points today. But this is the underlying truth that he's speaking to. The significance of God, the innate insignificance of man without God, and the gift of significance that God has given to man. Specifically, one man. Now, because I'm going to be using the words significant and insignificant throughout today's sermon, I already have many times, let me briefly define them for you. To be significant is to be sufficiently important or worthy of attention, full of power and influence. To be insignificant is to be comparatively unworthy of our consideration without power 
and influence. These definitions help us with these three foundational truths that we are going to look at today to help us understand who God is and who we are and what he's done for us. For example, God has great significance, does he not? God has great significance. He is innately important. For without him, none of creation would exist. All matter would cease and fail because he is full of power and influence as the most high authority. And so these definitions help us to understand these three ideas, these three central truths. And these three firm foundational truths of God's word and a Christian worldview will help us then also see the significance of God's judgment and God's redemption. And this will be our focus today as it reorients us to the significance of God. That's the title for today, the significance of God. Now, as we look into these truths, remember that we are reading the songbook of God's people intended to be used in public worship. And so we have started a pattern the last few weeks where we read of the Psalms uh, that we are covering together. So let's begin by reading together Psalm 8. And I want to encourage you to read it with the tone of praise and majesty and awe-inspiring goodness of God that is there in Psalm 8. And let's go ahead and read it as a group of people praising God, starting in verse 1. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The first thing that we see right away is that verses 1 and 9 are meant as an inclusio. They include something. They're bookends, if you will, to the rest of the psalm. Now, when this is present, often the literary structure is what's called a chiasm. Now, the reason I'm nerding out on this is because this will help you read Greek and Hebrew literature. These are everywhere in Scripture. They have this pattern of A, B, C, B, A, when the center verse is the main emphasis and the bookends are there repeating. These bookends point to that center and say, pay attention to this. They're pointing to this central truth. And so that would shine the light here on verse 5. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Now this verse, surrounded by the bookends of verses 1 and 9, show us that this psalm is dealing with those three earlier foundational points. The significance of God, the innate insignificance of man without God, and the gift of significance that God has given to man. So let's begin with the first piece, where we see right away the significance of God's majestic name. The significance of God's majestic name. And by stating his name, we mean God himself. But it's interesting that the Bible gives such focus to God's name. The Hebrew word for name is Shem. Can you say Shem? It's Shem. It's found five times in these Psalms alongside the actual name of God that we state as Yahweh. But it's here captured in the L-O-R-D, all capitals. The theme of God's name is a powerful one throughout the word. All creation was formed so that the name of God might be exalted and his glory might be known throughout the earth. For where the name of God is present, his authority exists alongside it. So in other words, he will place his name on the temple, he says in the Old Testament. He will place his name on his people, it says. In Revelation, it says that God will give his people his name. 
a new name. And so where his name is, his authority exists alongside it. Biblically, the idea of the name is often parallel with authority. And so what you have throughout Scripture is mankind attempting to usurp authority from God by making a name for ourselves rather than declaring the name and authority of God as we were intended to do. The first strong mention of this is at the Tower of Babel, where mankind wanted to make a name for ourselves rather than submit to the Creator God. And so God responded by confusing their languages, their tongues, as a curse. But the very next chapter is God continuing his work to make a name for himself by working through the lineage of one of Noah's sons. What was his name? Shem, the name in Hebrew. God continues his work of making his name great in spite of mankind's arrogant attempt to make our own name great. Friends, we live in a world where this is all we are attempting to do. You want to check? Grab your phones and go to any social media at all. It is all mankind attempting to make their name great. This theme continues right here in our Psalms. In verses 1 and uh, and 9 of Psalm 8, David declares the name of the Lord, Yahweh. Here we have the capital L-O-R-D, and the Hebrew manuscript would actually have the, the actual name of the Lord, Yahweh, the tetragrammaton. In Hebrew, yod He, vav He, four letters that speak to the name Yahweh. And so David says, how majestic is your name? He says, O Yahweh, but he says, O Lord, authority, our Lord, authority, how majestic, and majesty is a word for kings, is your name, your authority in all the earth. David is declaring God's significance. He didn't just write this so that Seth and Danielle could lead us in a wonderful worship song. No, he wrote this because this is a statement of God's power, God's strength, God's authority. He is declaring the name of God worthy of our attention and our submission. Now, why does the Bible have to repeat this truth of God's significance over and over again? Well, because of the core of our sinful hearts. The desire and practice of our hearts is to forget God, as we will see in Psalm 9. Because we are so busy raising ourselves up rather than proclaiming his name. But before we get to Psalm 9, let's look at Psalm 8 a bit more. First two verses of Psalm 9, we see that this psalm begins with thanksgiving to God, where David gives thanks with his whole heart to Yahweh, and he does so by recounting or remembering or giving attention to God's wondrous deeds. So we have Psalm 8, verses 1 and 9 doing the same thing, and then Psalm 9, verses 1 and 2. Look at what he says there. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. This idea of the name of God is powerful. I will sing praise to your name. His name, which is the highest authority of any authority in the universe. And David declares God's significance. Then in verse 5 of of Psalm 9, I know I'm jumping around here a bit, but just follow with me. In verse 5, it shows that God, in his judgment, will actually blot out the name of those rebelling against his authority. Look at what it says there. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. In other words, God's name will hold fast. And those who are trying to make their own name, their name will, in fact, be blotted out. And notice in verse 17, it is those who forget God. But those who know and trust in his name, verse 10, will be protected by the Lord. This idea and theme of the name of God flows throughout these two psalms in a huge way. So then, you might be asking, why do our Bibles not just put the name of God in print? If it's all about his name, why doesn't it just have his name right there? I remember preaching one time, and this person came up to me, and they said, this name you keep using, what what, what is that name? I said, Yahweh. And they said, well, I've been in Christian churches for 40 years, and I've never heard that name. And I said, well, each of your pastors should be held to account, because that is the name of the God that we follow. And they were shocked by it. Why? Well, partially because we've let the name be forgotten, proving what Psalm 9 says. But let's just walk through it for a second. Let me nerd out with you just really quickly in a little bit of history here. There's a great contrast between Judaism and the pagan religions around them and how they viewed and used the name of God in the past and still today. You see, pagan religions 
They have the name of God to use it as a sign of power over the spiritual realm. It becomes a magical incantation. And you'll know a false religion when they use the name of God for their power. It shows their lordship to manipulate the gods that you're calling upon. And friends, you see this even in certain forms of false Christianity, such as the prosperity gospel. If I just use the name of God appropriately, I will take things for Jesus. You ever seen people doing prayer circles around the town? Well, we're claiming this territory in the name of Jesus. Well, guys, that's a misuse of, of it, right? His name is on his people, and the whole world is his. You don't have to claim anything for him. It's already his, just so you know. If that offends you, go look it up. That's the truth of God's word, okay? And so false religions, pagan religions, will use this idea of God's name in order to manipulate the gods for their own purposes. This is the definition of using the name of Christ in vain. To the Jews, the gift of God's name, though, was given to Moses at the burning bush as a gift of covenant relationship between a conquering Lord and a mercifully conquering and captured people. Not unlike the time where I mistakenly wrote on a paper that Kelly and I were working on together in college her name, and she had to correct me because I had supposedly spelled it wrong, and then she told me she was just joking, and I knew I was in love with her. <laughs> it was a sign of covenant connection. She was being a smart aleck in that case. That's okay. I'll forgive her. But it was a sign of covenant connection. You're giving your name to someone for relationship. But with God, to know his name shows God's lordship over his covenant people. And this is why it's in the Ten Commandments to not use the name of Yahweh in vain. That's not primarily a statement against using it as a curse. Of course it is. Don't use God's name as a curse. But more so, it's a statement of using the name of Yahweh as a magical incantation to try and manipulate him as the pagans would. To use the name of God in vain is to state that you have a special spiritual authority. Which is why, friends, unless you are 110% sure that God has said something to you, such as, what scripture says, you should never claim to speak on his behalf. To do so is to come near the line and maybe step over it of using his name in vain. And that weighty view of his name is so important. To protect the name of God from being used this way, it was and still is the practice of Orthodox Jews to not pronounce the name of God. Instead, they would either say the Hebrew word for Lord, Adonai, everybody say Adonai, or they would say Hashem, which means the name. And that is why our English translation simply has the word in all capitals, Lord. It was a reminder that this is not a name for you to use in your lordship. It is a name for you to sit under as he is Lord. So say Adonai, Lord. And that's why our English translation has that word in all capitals. It's big. It's weighty. It's important. It is the name of God. And so it was a scribal decision that the name of God could never be misused. We even have the name Jehovah that we know, and Jehovah comes from the same place of the idea of this, the letters of the Tetragrammaton interspersed with the vowels from the word Adonai, Adonai. And so it was a reminder to people as they read or as they said the name of God that he is Lord. And what a wonderful way to check our hearts when we pray to God or when we sing praise to his name, or when we come to church or fellowship with his people, are we approaching him as one subservient to our will as we attempt pitifully to be his Lord? Or are we declaring him Lord of our lives and all creation and submitting to his will? David here is doing the latter. And friends, I know that we come in a time of evangelicalism where the big push for the last 50, 60, 70 years has been you and Jesus like this in personal relationship. But unfortunately, that pendulum has swung far too far in the wrong way. And we need to regain a submission and reverence to the name of God because he is God and we are not. Yahweh's name is significant. His authority is worth regarding because all creation declares his handiwork. Like Paul in Romans 1, David then uses the heavens above and the earth beneath to declare the glory of God here back in Psalm 8. And this is a reference point back to the beginning of the whole Bible when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Notice what it says there. It says in verse 
Three, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? He uses this idea of heaven and earth. The heavens above and the earth beneath are the two witnesses that declare that God exists, that he is powerful, that he is wonderful, and that he is a loving, benevolent provider. Creation itself provides an ontological proof that there needs to be a creator, that there is matter that exists in the material world means that there has to be a being outside of the material world that could create that matter. And that our civilization, since the beginning of the so-called enlightenment, has begun to doubt this fact shows just how ignorant we are, that our collective worldview has forgotten God and made him insignificant while falsely elevating ourselves to a place of significance without him. You see this even in the debates. Years ago, there was a documentary uh, that uh, this one individual put on, and they talked to one of the leading evolutionists. And the evolutionist said, well, the beginnings of a creation were on the backs of crystals. And the person who was interviewing said, where did the crystals come from? Well, he said, on the back of crystals. I already told you. And he started to get frustrated. And even if we go back to two molecules bumping together, friends, where did they come from? There has to be something outside of creation in order for creation to exist. And this is David's point. That creator is a powerful being. But God's significance and power are even greater than just his awesome creation itself. David goes one level deeper and says that what really displays God's significance and power is how he takes the smallest, the most insignificant, the most vulnerable and weak creations, and he creates strength out of them to defeat even his greatest enemies. Look at verse 2 there. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Friends, God doesn't use obvious power. He could do a Thanos and instantaneously dismiss us. If you don't know what that is, it's a comic book. Thought I'd be relevant and popular there for a second, but only like two of you smiled. He could absolutely dismiss us in a moment, but he doesn't use that obvious power. He saves by the few, the weak, and the disenfranchised. That's how powerful he is. Now, David continues and notes that perhaps his greatest show of this form of strength is that he chose one of the most vulnerable animals in all his kingdom to show his power, reflect his image, and declare his name. David declares the great significance of God and his name by contrasting him with the insignificance of mankind. And remember, by insignificance, I mean something comparatively unworthy of our consideration without power and influence. Friends, mankind has tricked ourselves into believing that by forming societies and increasing technology, we are significant as if we were lords. We celebrate the fact that we can shoot objects with people into it, into outer space. We're like, look at how powerful we are. Blip. From God's perspective, that's all it is. He's like, hey, you got a couple inches off the earth. Good job. (laughs) Remember, I created all of this and you got like this far. And yet we think we're amazing, don't we? We think we're absolutely amazing. But think for a moment. Think for a moment about the animal kingdom. And let's simply drop a human into the African savanna for a moment among lions and wildebeests and more. And let's say that human is just an infant with no parental care. Friends, how, will, how well will that go? Are we the most powerful, most important, most significant creature in God's kingdom? Just go to the zoo and ask that question as you watch gorillas tear things apart. We have to answer, no, we are absolutely not. When we are in our right mind, we are absolutely not. Yes, we have a brain, but friends, that doesn't even turn fully on until 25. And any parent in this room knows that. It is a miracle of God that mankind has not destroyed itself. Even the tools we build, it's amazing we haven't destroyed ourselves. Anyone ever heard of nuclear weapons? And there's a bunch of humans sitting over those buttons. This is David's point, that God can take the insignificant and make them significant. The Hebrew in verse 4 points this out. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? It uses two different words for man. First, it uses the word that focuses on the mortality of mankind. In other words, what is mortal man that you, the eternal God, would even think of him? The sons of then the Hebrew word Adam, Adam, the one who rebelled against God. How would you care for him? 
this rebellious offspring? It's an amazing question, is it not? God is so significant that he created all that we see, and yet, in his benevolence and his mercy, he chose to use mankind as the means of reflecting his image to the physical cosmos and spiritual realm. Friends, think about it this way. When was the last time you were outside with insects crawling around? It's any time you're outside, just so you know. It's walking outside on the parking lot. You may not notice them, but they're there. Now, the next time you're outside, do you carefully watch for every inch that you're stepping so you don't squash an ant, a fly, a microscopic bug? I literally was getting out of my car the other day, and I don't know if this just shows me hard-hearted, but I was literally putting my foot down as this ant ran right under my toe as I stepped, and I didn't stop, and I squished him, and I had this instantaneous like, oh, his poor ant family. He's never going to see them again. And then I walked in my garage and went about my day, right? Why? Because I probably have created ant genocide. I have squashed that many ants in my life, and so have you. But friends, it's impossible for us. We walk with abandon, and we don't even know what we're, damage we're doing. But friends, that distance from my brain down to that ant is nothing in comparison to the distance between a mortal human and the eternal and immortal God. And yet, that being the, the fact, the case, in his loving kindness, he cares for us. He acknowledges you. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He made you. He purposed for you to exist. The significant God, by his very nature of loving kindness, has made you and I. Insignificant creatures become significant by the means of his remembrance and acknowledgement of us. And this, friends, is a gift of God. It's not an innate characteristic of man. And this is a horror, this statement I just made, that it is not an innate characteristic of man to be significant. This is a horror to our current day culture where all of life is directed towards making oneself significant. In fact, if I were to say this in most of society, they'd say, how dare you say that? You're going you're to make people suicidal. You're going to tell them they're insignificant. No, the problem is actually the fact that they're trying to make themselves significant, and that's why they're so broken. If they would admit their insignificance and turn to the significant God, they would have nothing but joy because they would realize the gift that has been given to them. Friends, the fight is not for getting our self-esteem up in significance. It's for eradicating it so we turn to the significant God and see who we truly are and turn to him in worship and praise. Friends, this is the truth of the Bible. The truth of the Bible is that God is significant and we are not, and it is only by his gift that we have become significant. Look at Isaiah 40, 6 through 8. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is like grass. All its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. It reiterates the insignificance of man and the significance of God. James says something similar about the rich who might think that they are significant. In our society, that's who we might say, oh, they're going to last forever. Bezos, man, he's going to last forever on his yacht. Like everybody's going to remember him forever. Well, what does the Bible say? Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. I remember even just a, a decade ago, whenever a pastor wanted to talk about a rich person, they'd talk about who? Bill Gates. I don't even know if most people under 20 know who Bill Gates is anymore. Right? Well, Steve Jobs, maybe. Bezos, maybe. But even Bill Gates, he's fading into the distance. He won't be known very much longer. Neither will you and I. Because without God, we are insignificant. Ecclesiastes comes across to our contemporary sensibilities as depressing, for example. Because it points out that life is but a vapor and our entire purpose is to worship and obey God. It points out the significance of God and our insignificance that we're simply here toiling in the life that God gave us. But it says at the end, the whole point of man is to worship and give praise and to obey God. 
And Psalm 9 will then reiterate this, that the very memory of rebellious mankind will be forgotten, but God's name is majestic and will stand forever. It is amazing, therefore, because of this contrast of God's significance and mankind's innate insignificance, it is amazing and worthy of all praise that God would show his glory through us. And that is what we see in the remainder of Psalm 8. Take a look there at verses 5 through 8. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Our reading from Hebrews places mankind a little lower than the angels. And we see here the same thing, where it pulls from. And we'll understand the full meaning of it in a moment when we go back to Hebrews. But for right now, pull back from the messianic context of this that Hebrews gives us and see that this is a reminder of the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2, when we were also set a little higher than the animals or livestock in the world and a little lower than the angelic beings. You see, we, friends, exist in this middle point between flesh and divinity. We are the animal creation in whom God chose to reflect his image. Friends, it could have been a different animal in all likelihood, and yet he chose us. He could have done it through angels, and yet he chose us. Now, the evolutionists would declare that mankind is nothing more than a further evolved animal. And I have to say, this makes a ton of sense if you remove the idea of God. For we are mammals who be behave very similarly to other mammals, especially when we are selfish. We become beasts. We become beasts driven by instinct and not logical creatures of relationship, not logical creatures of knowledge and wisdom. Now, it is a fact that this is what we focus on. If this is what we focus on, we will devolve and become just like the animals, just like the beasts. Our society has proven this. If we dismiss our primary purpose of worship and reflection of the Creator, we will devolve to a point where we spend our days eating and drinking and fornicating and pursuing the pleasure principle of Freudian psychology. That's all we will live for. We have proven this in our society as supposedly intelligent academics look to the animal kingdom for declarations of normalcy in human behavior. It's the other way around, friends. And it's been said before that if we tell our children in schools enough that they are nothing but evolved animals, they will begin behaving as such. So why are we shocked at the sexual perversion, greed, selfishness, and violence that overwhelms our current culture? We shouldn't be shocked at all. We've been telling our culture for decades that we are nothing but animals. Now, we are reminded here of Paul's words in Romans 1 that we started with, that we will be given over to our fleshliness, our perversion, and sin as a judgment because we forget the name of God. And the natural outcome will be the refusal of God and his order, his natural order, his biblical sexual ethic, his view of gender. It's not unlike Nebuchadnezzar who promoted himself in prideful arrogance, believing himself significant over and above God, yet in judgment, he quickly found himself pastured among the livestock, acting as an undisciplined beast. But there is another option, is it not? Rather than descending into the animals over whom we are to have authority and, and focusing on them, could we not ascend as we look to God in worship? For this is the other option of mankind, that in looking to our Creator, we become more and more like Him as we reflect His perfect character to those around us. And this is the purpose of mankind, is it not? Recall Genesis 1.26. God said, let us make man in our image. The Hebrew word there is tselem. It means a statue after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God declared that mankind was made to reflect the image of God. That is our entire purpose. If you feel like you don't know what your life's purpose is, that's your purpose. And when you live outside that purpose, you will feel brokenness. Now, as more archaeological digs have occurred in the Near East, the cultural context of this idea has become more and more clear. For when a ruler or an emperor had authority over a given area, he would erect images or statues in his likeness to remind his subjects of who he is and what his care is for them. One commentator notes this, These images were set up in locations around the king's domain to provide a visible representation to the people 
of the distant and therefore effectively invisible king. And that, dear friends, is what you and I are supposed to be as image bearers. The phrase image bearers of God is not a statement of our innate significance aside from God. It is a statement of our worth in reflecting God. For in our speech and thought and creativity, creation is to see the divine wisdom and artistry of the creator God. In our desire for and nourishment of relationships, creation sees the communal nature of our triune God. In the institutions of the family and God's covenant people, creation is to see God's covenant faithfulness and love, his hesed. In the institutions of governmental authority and within congregationalism, creation is to experience the justice of God, even as broken as it may often seem. Now, we declare something about the creator and that the animal kingdom cannot. We reflect the glory, wisdom, beauty, and power of Yahweh. And so God has made us a little lower than the angels and yet, unlike them, crowned us with glory and honor. Not because of our significance, but because of our insignificance, because he likes to show himself powerful by using the weak things. And in so doing, in giving us dominion, his divine plan to destroy his enemies is moving forward in a way that shows his power alone. A significant God has shown his great power, love, mercy, and grace by granting his insignificant creation that same glorious significance. The commentator G.H. Wilson put it this way, Humans who can seem so powerless and small in the scheme of things are invested with stupendous worth and responsibility by the Creator. Created in the very image of God, they are given responsibility to extend God's dominion and protective care over the rest of creation. When we realize this, dear friends, it makes sin, understandably, that much more heinous and violent. For in our sinful pride, we thought the significance of God as something owed to us, something we could grasp and to which we are and have been entitled rather than a gift God has given by his grace. Praise be to God that he did not in his majestic glory wipe humanity out immediately. All he had to do was give us over to the animal kingdom after the fall and we would have been eradicated. He could have done it without a need for justification. For he is the majestic God, and we are merely his creation. He granted life, and he could easily remove it. But in his great mercy and grace, God saved humanity from immediate physical destruction. And even beyond that, he initiated a plan of spiritual salvation. And to do so, God worked through this same gracious plan of granting significance to the insignificant. For it was through a child, born of a vulnerable virgin girl, in the care of an insignificant tribe from Bethlehem, that salvation for all creation would come. And this child grew to become a simple carpenter and an itinerant rabbi from a region of Israel that was looked down upon. And he would die an insignificant death as a criminal, having to be laid to rest in a borrowed tomb. The scripture tells us that there was nothing special about him, nothing significant. Isaiah 53, 2, he had no former majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Friends, he would have had no followers on his social media. He was not the significant one in his earthly appearance. This idea is that the Messiah, from an earthly perspective, was insignificant. And yet, God the Father crowned him with glory. And with honor to the point where all things, including sin, death, hell, and Satan, would be placed under his feet in defeat. And this is why the author of Hebrews looks at this psalm that initially is speaking about mankind and what we were given, but what we threw away because of our rebellion, and sees the messianic statement of it. Sees that this is actually about Christ, and because it's about Christ, it is a redemption of the crowning of glory for those who are his and found in him. It is the Savior and Lord, the perfect, insignificant human that has been given the greatest significance of all. Would you go there with me to Hebrews? Hebrews chapter 2, and let's read it again with this in mind. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 6. It 
It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. In other words, he became insignificant like us, that through death he might destroy the one who is the power of death, that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, God's chosen people, his elect. Verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Friends, through the salvation brought about by Christ, not only do we have one who has purchased and imputed to you and I great significance in his righteousness, but we also have one who knows what it is like to feel insignificant, to be tempted to despair because of our insignificance, and one who was tempted to rebelliously grasp for himself the significance that God alone has. Remember his temptation in the wilderness. Is that not a temptation for you and I? To become significant, to be powerful gods, to rule the world. And yet Jesus fought it. He was in all points tempted as we are, and yet without sin. Through Christ, you and I, by the blood of his sacrifice and the power of his spirit placed within us, we've been crowned with glory and honor that we do not deserve. Nothing we have done warrants this, and yet is the gift of God. Oh Christ, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I will recount your deeds. I will give praise to your name. Friend, if you are here today and you know the depth of despair that comes from recognizing your insignificance, you can continue to try and fight it. Or you can band-aid over it with social media or some other vain attempt to give your life significance through money or sex or success or popularity. Or you can accept the gracious conviction of a loving God that he has made you for a significant purpose. But it cannot be grasped without an intimate connection to him in loving relationship. And so today, if this is you, admit your insignificance to God and surrender your life to him, and he will lift you up. He will give you significance as his beloved, adopted child and as a beloved member of his people. And if you want to do that, we would love to talk with you about what that is. Any of the pastors up here at the end would love to walk with you through that. Friends, I know that this was massive in my life. I'm going to go off script here for a second. I was a basketball player that was one of the most heavily recruited people in the whole state of Oregon. I had coaches calling me all hours of the day to try and woo me. And I went and I played in Madison Square Garden and I did everything that every basketball player wants to do. I was interviewed by Bill Walton. I played against some of the greatest players of the game, and I thought I was so significant. I was going to be like the greatest players that ever played the game. And then I transferred out of Notre Dame. I went back to visit Kelly for a dance that winter, and we walked into the Joyce Center where I had played not even nine months earlier. No one remembered my name. I can't tell you how insignificant I felt. The very idol that I had worked my entire life to build up was gone. And I kept persisting. I tried. I got over to Europe. I tried to get to the pros. I worked out with the Blazers. I tried to grasp that idol, and it never was enough. And then one day, the Lord finally said to me, you realize you're not that significant. And it was in that moment that I finally gained freedom 
from the bondage of the idolatry that was in my life. I loved myself so much, but I was blinded to that fact because I was just down in the dumps, holding God accountable to my expectations for my own lordship. It wasn't until I admitted my insignificance and his great significance that I finally was freed. Friends, I hope that's here for you today. I hope that's here for you today. Fall on your knees. Admit his significance and your insignificance and he will crown you with glory and honor because of his son, Jesus. Friends, it is this basis of God's significance, mankind's insignificance and God's gracious gift of significance to mankind that lays the foundation for all the rest of the Bible. And we even see it here in Psalm 9. Would you go there with me? Psalm 9. And here David calls for the judgment of the wicked and the salvation of God's people. And if we don't understand these first truths that we've looked through, we won't understand judgment and salvation. This is why the world doesn't understand them, is they've dismissed those truths. Well, let's first look at the significance of God's judgment. And we see this in verses 3 through 8 and 15 through 20. When we make ourselves significant and we make God insignificant, as our society has done, it seems bizarre to us that God would have the right to judge or that we would have the need of salvation. For in our minds, we're already significant. But do you see the lie that Satan is feeding you bit by bit every day in this world? Thank God that he corrects our errant thinking. Take a look there with me at verses 3 through 8. When enemies, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence, for you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits, and notice the L-O-R-D, Yahweh sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the people with uprightness. Look at verses 15 through 20. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. Yahweh has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Yahweh. Let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Yahweh. Let the nations know that they are but men. David makes clear here that mankind is owed nothing by God. Again, he contrasts God's significance and the founded throne as king with the insignificance of rebellious mankind. Notice the wording, the Lord, verse 4, sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. Yahweh, verse 7, sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne of justice and judges the world with righteousness, judges the peoples with uprightness. But the wicked stumble. They turn back, it says in verse 3. They are rebuked and will perish. Their name is blotted out. They come to an end in everlasting ruins and their very memory will perish. In judgment, God will give them over to insignificance by removing the gracious significance which, with which he has crowned them in life and their role of image bearing. Verses 15 through 20 then declare how this judgment has come about. And David says, It is their own doing. Mankind bears the responsibility of their own folly and rebellion. It is as if, David says, they prepared a net, a hunting trap for their enemy, and yet they are the ones that are caught in it. For Yahweh, the creator God and Lord of all creation, has made himself known to us through the creation he has given us as well as the free gift of significance with which he has crowned us. And yet, the very work of our hands, the idols we have made that reflect our own lordship and our own self-worship, they have snared us and declared judgment upon us because it is through them that we state our own errant significance. But does mankind still create idols, you might ask? Wasn't that the old pagan world? Well, this is where we must remember that an idol is anything that you manifest to reflect yourself and your view of right and wrong and who God should be. It is the opposite of freely submitting to who God declares himself to be in his holy word and the image he is trying to reflect off of you. Anytime you or I pervert God's word to be what we want it to be, we are creating an idol that reflects ourselves. Only submission to God's word rightly taught is the antidote. We create these idols because we worship ourselves rather than the God who created us. 
And this is what Jesus was saying as quoted by the Apostle John in John 3, 18 through 21. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his own works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Mankind is condemned already because we love our sin and so we contort God to be one that supports us in it rather than repenting in truth and submitting to him. In so doing, David here declares that we forget God. In other words, like those historical markers on the side of the road I mentioned earlier, we buzz past the reminders of God's significance as if there was nothing there because we are too important and too significant ourselves. And friends, this is the height of pride, to believe that this world was created for my purposes. For the created vessel, the pot, to forget the potter who formed it and declare that it has life within itself and is entitled to the crown of lordship as if it were the potter. This is pride. It's the pride that overtook our first ancestors and is the pride that overtakes us. And so David, with the just heart of the God who has crowned him, cries out to God in verse 19 and verse 20 to carry out the judgment due to mankind. When we realize what we have done to God, it will call for us or we will call for him to judge us rightly because we will realize the sin that's been done to him. And look at how he sums up this judgment in the last line. Let the nations know that they are but men. In other words, he calls upon God to return mankind to the state of their insignificance. When we remember God's significance and our innate insignificance, this is no longer the mean punishment of a despotic tyrant God. It instead becomes the natural outcome of a creation that forgets its creator. We become insignificant by our own doing. Dear friends, you have been granted a great gift by God, life itself. Your existence declares that God has given you life and crowned you with significance as his image bearer. And so you have the option of forgetting God or creating a God, if you have a God at all, in your own image and living your life in prideful rebellion. But there will come a point where you will stand before the fearful judgment seat of Yahweh. What will you say on that day? Will you, as the pot, question the potter why he did not make you more significant? Or will you gladly stand before the one whose very image you spent your life reflecting? For friends, that day will bring great joy to those of us who want to bear his image, who have been given the gift of bearing his image. We will see with our eyes what, what has been invisible before and what we have tried to reflect but have not known fully. We will joyfully see invisible glory, the invisible king whom we have loved with every part of our being. And this is the option that begins with realizing our own insignificance before a significantly gracious and loving and holy God. And friends, if you do this, if you respond to this, you will find yourself crying out to God to save you. And it is then that you will see fully the significance of God's redemption. The significance of God's redemption. And we will end here today. The significance of God's redemption. Because God is holy and just, he is the one who will bring the wicked to judgment. But God is not only just, he's also merciful. And so the good news of God's word is that even though humanity has, on the whole, rebelled against his gracious gift, he will not wipe out the memory of all mankind. Instead, he is graciously granted to his chosen people to once again know his name, to once again have his authority reigning over them as it was intended at the beginning. Mankind propagated the lie of the adversary and in a sense assisted in the denial of Yahweh's name and authority. We hated the light and loved the darkness. We believed the lie. We suppressed the truth. But God in his gracious love did not forsake us for this. Instead, he graciously reached out and reestablished his crowning glory in our lives and once again gave us significance in him. He assisted us to know his name and put our trust in him. And this redemption is the most significant event of all mankind, for in it alone God fulfilled his original purpose for mankind, that the sons and daughter of mankind might reflect his glory to the world. 
And so this one true God, Yahweh, is the one that we can look to in times of trouble as our stronghold and our Savior. The word stronghold is repeated in verse 9 because God is that secure. God is that firm and strong. When we feel our insignificance and acknowledge that we are innately wicked and in bondage to sin, God shows up and becomes our stronghold. He is the one that works it in us in the first place to acknowledge it. And when we acknowledge the oppression of sin under which we sit, Christ becomes our refuge. To strive in this life to make much of ourselves will only lead to brokenness. We will sit in a place of entitlement and we will be frustrated because God has not fulfilled our needs and our wants. But to gladly exist as a reflection, a likeness of God that created you and saved you will lead to contentment and joy. For friends, even in death, Reflecting God's glory is fulfilled. Even in trial, reflecting God's glory is fulfilled. Even and especially in suffering, God's glory and our purpose is fulfilled. By granting us salvation and showing us the truth of who he is and who we are, he becomes our perfect avenger, redeemer, And here's our cry of affliction as we look to him and his glory to save us. And it is in this foundational truth, this foundational progression of thought, that we find the good news of the gospel that Christ came to declare. Look at what it says there in verse 11. Sorry, excuse me, verse 9. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, the stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Yahweh, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. God is significant, so significant that he was able to take us in our insignificance and make us his sub-regents, his sub-kings, giving us charge over his creation to reflect his great glory. And even though mankind rebelled against this and walked in entitlement and arrogance, God responded to us once again in his glorious significance by sending the Christ and enthroning him as the perfectly obedient son of man. And in his death, Christ represented us in our mortality, but then in his resurrection, he displayed his godliness and immortality. Christ showed that he is the one to take the, the throne intended for mankind from the beginning, the place where God desired to crown us with glory and honor. And Christ now holds that glory and honor, and in Christ, he now draws you and I to reign with him as his redeemed people. Friends, when God's spirit grasps our heart, David shows us the proper response in verses 13 and 14. He shows us how we respond when God shows us these truths and reveals to us that he is significant and we are only significant as found in him. Look at verses 13 and 14 there. In these, we cry out like David for God's grace, for he alone is the one that can lift us from the very gates of death and hell. God alone crowns us with new life and a renewed heart so that we may recount his praise and speak of the wondrous action of redemption and salvation. And so friends, as we leave this place, as you exit this building today, the question that you must grapple with is, whom will you spend today and the rest of your life glorifying? Will your life give significance to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Or will it be spent trying to gain your own significance aside from him? I pray it will be the former for every person in this church. And that is what we will do today. Now, as we step into communion, we will give as a local expression of his church through all time and space, we will give him significance as we declare it through the ordinance of communion. And that's what we will do as a people. But as individuals, what will we do from here on out? So as we now move from the ministry of the word into our time of remembrance and thanksgiving at the sacrifice of Christ, let's follow in David's cry. Will you read verses 11 through 14 with me? 
And as we read, let's make the words of our own cry words of humility, praise, and thanksgiving. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation." Friends, we can give majesty to the name of God today. We can cry out, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's do this today as a church, but let's do this every day with our lives. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, I thank you for a group of people that love your word and love unpacking it and understanding it and applying it to their lives. Thank you, Lord, for this church. Thank you that we are called together to make your name significant in this world. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be broken in our own insignificance, but that we would then be turned to you and your significance so you could draw us to yourself and that we could fully realize that we have been called your beloved, that we have been adopted as your children, that we have been brought as co-laborers to declare your name and image to those around us. Friends, I pray for every person in this room this morning that is wrestling with their own insignificance. Many of us, as we are overwhelmed by this world around us, we feel it and know it and become overcome with a sense of that insignificance. Lord, I pray that you would rescue us from that pit and draw us up into the truth of your word, that in knowing you, you have made us known to yourself. You have made us special in a sense to yourself. And that is not innate to us, but it is because of your loving kindness and your goodness. And so I pray, Lord, that anyone in this room this morning that is struggling with these ideas would be turned to you in your steadfast love and faithfulness and that they would be overwhelmed with joy and thanksgiving because you are a good God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.